Recently, there was a video that circulates around the internet. And you see the picture of a, a pair of hands. And what happened was this hand actually carried a, a bottle of water, of actually soft drink. And so what happened was, we do not know whether it's a man or a woman, but he, this person took the bottle of water. And then he, he just splashed the water, and together with a sponge, he started to rub off on a piece of metal bumper. And lo and behold, as he, as he pours the, the, the liquid onto the bumper, and as he uses the sponge, and he or she used the sponge to wipe off, the stain came off, the rust kind of came off. Right? So, and what happened was the bumper, be, be, not say fully restored, but it, it retained some of the, uh, the shine, some of the chrome. Right? And so towards the end of the video, this person kind of turned the bottle, whether intentionally or not intentionally, and it was a bottle with a red cap, and the liquid is black color. And uh, as you slowly turn, I don't know whether it's a marketer who did it, but you saw that actually it's called Coca-Cola. Right? Now, for those who are of my age, born in the 60s, when we grew up at that time, Coca-Cola is called the real thing. Yeah, it's called the real thing. Right? Today, when you say Coca-Cola, you call it Coke, actually. Coke is the name of an illicit drug. The question here is this. Today we talk about a passage and we ask ourselves, is Christ the real thing? Is Christ the real thing? Right, so if you have your bulletin, please take out the order of worship and we will go through the, the passage today, the study today. Let's start with the background. The background is this. This is possibly the first of Paul's prison epistles. That means he was writing this letter to the city of Colossae when he was in prison. Now, this uh, church at, at Colossae was not founded by Paul, nor visited by him, but it was founded by Epaphras. Now, the purpose of the letter? To encourage a group of believers. Now, why encourage them? Because in that church, the church of Colossae, there were false teaching. The believers there were confronted with false teaching. Now, among many, but the core is they undermined the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The false teaching over in the church of Colossae undermined the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And so the heretics, those who were false teachers, they told the believers that the believers there need something more than the real thing. They need their relationship with Jesus, yes, but they need more than that. What is the importance the importance for all of us as we come in today's, into today's text is that is Christ's atonement sufficient and complete? Or is there something else? Today we want to explore this idea. Is Christ's atonement sufficient and complete? You see, our destiny, our eternal destiny, hangs in the balance. If the claims of Jesus written in the Bible are not true, not the real thing, for example, Jesus declared with his own mouth in John 14. He says that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he added, no man comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus also said in, in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Is Jesus sacrificed? 
at the cross of Calvary sufficient to save us? This answer is very important. And for today, we're going to talk about the truth of the gospel and Christ. And God willing, next Sunday, I will continue with chapter 2, the truth of Christ and the Christian. For some of us, this truth will be a time of rediscovery. For others, this may well be a first-time discovery, never thought of before. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you that now is the time we can go into your word, a time of study. We thank you, Lord, for the worship songs that lead us into worshipping you this morning. The lyrics and the phrases remind us of who you are. We thank you for the scripture reading, the congregational reading just now in John 1. Father, right now we want to study your word as you instruct your servant Paul to write to the church in Colossae. We know, Lord, that your word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man and the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so therefore, help us to know your word today. Then we shall be able to know your will and your ways. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your bulletin, please turn with me to the first point in the bulletin, set apart in Christ. The text for today is Colossians 1. Let me read to all of us. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. We are set apart in Christ, verses 1 to 14. In verse 1 to 5, it talks about greetings, our identity. Verse 2 says, holy. Now, holy means to be set apart. Set apart. It is not enough to say that we are set apart away from the world. It's not enough. We are set apart by God and for God. Set apart. Now, how? How are we set apart? We are set apart and declared holy before God through the work of Christ at Calvary. When Christ died on the cross as our substitute, in fact, He suffered, then He died as our substitute. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, today, we are continuing to be made holy day after day in our lives. Paul says to the saints, that means to those who are set apart, and faithful brothers in Christ, Faithful means steadfast commitment. Very interesting, this word is used exclusively in the New Testament for believers. Only for believers, they are called faithful ones. Today, if we are Christian, when we address each other, remind ourselves, remember that faithful ones are only exclusively used for Christian. Holy, faithful, and brothers. Now, brothers and that, of course, include sisters. Means that they are one spiritual family. Despite differences in background, race, or any other, any other purely human considerations. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from now. This is not a term that we use casually. If we should write this in our email and our letter, grace and peace, remember, they are two blessings which are gifts from God. They are gifts from God. 
Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you, 2 Corinthians 12. Grace and peace are gifts from God. And Christ again said, my peace I give to you, John 14. Grace and peace are two blessings which are gifts from God. We are set apart in Christ, our identity. We are set apart in Christ, our inheritance. Verse 5, let's continue. Verse 6 talks about the gospel. The gospel is not something that we can earn. It is God's gift. That's why it's our inheritance. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Gospel means good news or good message. Now, we encounter many kinds of good news. Occasionally, we read a story in the newspaper or watch a report on television that truly is good news. Right? The government is going to give up some GST voucher. Good news. Now, as positive as this might be, and the COE is going to drop, I hope. Good news. They fade in comparison to the good news of the gospel found in the Bible. The gospel is God's plan for redeeming men and women to Himself. Remember this. This is really the absolute good news. God's plan to redeem men and women for Himself. And it can be summed up in four words, in four simple words. God, man, Christ, response. Verse 5 talks about triad. A triad of faith, love and hope. Now, we are alienated and now we are bringing the redemption. Right? But verse 5 gives us this triad of hope, uh, triad of faith, love and hope. Three fundamental characteristics that ought to be evident in the life of anyone whom the gospel has taken root. Okay? Not only that, these virtues, these three virtues should be increasingly evident. It should be increasingly evident in our lives. Okay? But faith begins the process. Now, faith. Faith is not a blind jump into the dark. It's not a blind jump into the dark. In, in biblical understanding, the idea to believe, to believe is a strong word. And faith is being persuaded or convinced that something is true. Not only that, and trusting it with your life. Okay? Faith in the biblical understanding is being persuaded or convinced that something is true and trusting it with your life. And the faith is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 4. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us that Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. So, and then it says that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not a blind jump into the dark. It is to be convinced that something is true and trusting it with your life. Now, that's not I mentioned the word in Christ in verse 4. Now, the word in Christ appears altogether 13 times. 13 times in four chapters. 13 times in 95 verses, the book, uh, the, letter, uh, the letter of Colossians has four, four chapters, one, two, three, and four. 95 verses. That means for every seven verse, Paul reminds the believers in Colossae that they are in Christ. They are in Christ. Every seven verse, if you divide it out on average, we are in Christ. Faith is only the beginning. Faith, love, and hope. Now, faith in Jesus Christ should produce love for others in the faith, according to the verse. Now, the love that the faith in Jesus Christ produces, now it's a unique love. It's an interesting love. It's a love that is inclusive and non-selective. The love that Jesus produces in all of us is a love that is inclusive and non-selective. That means we don't pick and choose whom we love. And verse 4 tells us that it is a love for all the saints, that means for everyone and for every believer. 
So genuine Christianity is evidence when we love the undeserving. When we are able to love the undeserving the same way God has loved the undeserving us. Faith, love. The next is hope. Now, biblical hope is a strong word. It is looking forward with eager anticipation and strong confidence to the certain or to the sure promises of God. And then the verse tells us that our hope is secure because it is stored in heaven. Our hope is secure because it is stored in heaven. Now, a believer's hope is inseparable from his faith. You say you have faith, you have hope. Hope for Christ's coming. Verse 6, it talks about the gospel is bearing fruit over the world and growing. The letter of Colossae was written just three decades after Pentecost. But at this time, the gospel has already spread into every part of the Roman Empire. Now, Paul used this hyperbole to counter the false teachers in Colossae who said, hey, the Christianity is only located, it's only localized in the city of Colossae. Nobody else outside the city has heard about Christ. No, this is not true. Paul says all over the world. The implication for all of us as we read this phrase all over the world is that the gospel is never intended. It's never intended for an inclusive, for an exclusive group of people. The gospel is never intended that way. It transcends all ethnic, geographic, cultural, and political boundaries. Right? That's why the gospel is benefit and, and growing all over the world. Now, verse 9. We jump verse 7 and go to and 8, go to verse 9. Verse 7 talks about Epaphras, who is the founder of the church. Now, verse 9. Look at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Pray for what? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Biblical knowledge is not merely the possession of facts. Biblical knowledge and wisdom, according to this text, are practical, having to do with godly living. That's why in verse 10, Paul added, in order that you may have a life worthy of the Lord, in verse 10, and may please Him every day, every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. It's not enough to say biblical knowledge is practical, so we live our Christian life in a practical way. Singapore are very pragmatic Singaporeans, right? We live in a practical way. No, yes, in one sense it's practical, but it's practical for godly living, not for ungodly living. All right? So the practicality lies in for godly living. Verse 12 talks about giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Very interestingly, God qualified us. How? Only through the finished work of Christ. And then he contrasts in verse 13, for he, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness or delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, meaning Jesus, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sin. Now verse 13 uses a very stark word for to deliver us or delivering us. The forceful meaning of the word implies that the, the person is in a position or situation of extreme peril, extreme danger, whereby she or he is unable to get out of his own. The reality is that we are under the power and control of the dominion of darkness before Christ came, before we received Jesus. And so this dominion of darkness is the realm where Satan enforces his authority. But Paul tells the believers in Colossae that they have been rescued from Satan's domain. And verse 13 tells us it's through Jesus that we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Verse 14. Redemption. The word redemption means to deliver by payment of a ransom. Used for freeing slaves from bondage. This is a strong word. Nowadays, we go and see to redeem some coupon. But redemption is a word used for freeing slaves from bondage. 
we are all in bondage to sin before we became believers. That's what verse 14 tells us. But, but praise the Lord, we have forgiveness. We are set apart in Christ and from alienation, God actually brings us to redemption. What is redemption? The story was told of Abraham Lincoln. One day he went to the, the marketplace and he came across a slave trading uh, event. And so as you look at the as you go forward to take a look, now they were the slave trader or slave owner were actually auctioning the slaves to sell to the people. And so Abraham Lincoln saw a little girl about maybe six to eight years old, short, a black girl. And so Abraham Lincoln went forward and told the slave trader, I will pay for this girl. So the man named a price. The girl was released from the shackles and the chain, and then she stepped down from the stage. And as Abraham Lincoln turned to walk away, she followed after him. And so Abraham turned back and said, why, why are you following me? Right. So she, uh, then she said, because you paid a ransom for me. Then Abraham said, you are free to go. Then he said, uh, sir, uh, what do you mean by free? Free as in you can be yourself. Oh, sir, you mean that I can uh, be called the name that I have before? Yes. That means that I can do the things that I want to do? Yes. That means I can go back to my family? Yes. This is redemption to deliver by payment of a ransom. We are set apart in Christ, set apart by God and for God, from alienation to redemption. Redemption occurs when someone pays a ransom. Abraham paid a ransom for the slave girl. Jesus paid a ransom for all of us. And Jesus' ransom for all of us is His life, for our life. Set apart in Christ. But that is only the beginning. Paul tells us that, the, tells the believers in Colossae that there are some more things, which brings us to the second point in your handout. Set apart in Christ. Second point is secure in Christ. Tell me about, tell me about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Christ? Verse 15 says like this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word image, today is translated as icon, is used in Paul's time for likeness placed on coins, portraits or statues. Today's equivalent would be the photograph. Now Hebrews 1.3 says that the sun, that means Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Firstborn of all creation means Jesus is preeminent and sovereign over everything. And verse 16 tells us, For by Him all things were created. A long list. He gave us a long list things in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, authorities. There is nothing in the creator order that Jesus did not create according to John verse, chapter 1 verse 3. Now since only God can be the creator, this means that Jesus is even more than an image of God. Jesus is God. Verse 17. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is the powerful sustainer of the universe. Because of Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Jesus is in control, meaning what? Meaning that nothing happens in our lives. There are random acts of man. But God is overall in charge and in control. Our life is a life of order, not chaos. 
verse 18. And he is the head of the, church, the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything, Christ has the supremacy over creation. And very interesting, over the church. Now, the term church, I want to belabor at this point. The term church or ecclesia means the body of believers. That means you and I. Not the church building. 17 Mata Road is our church building. Right? It's called Grace Baptist Church Building. But when we mention the church, when Paul mentioned the church, and I hope when we mention the church, it's the body of Christ, you and I. First born from the dead. First born from the dead means the idea that before Jesus Christ, there are also others who preceded Jesus from being, re- from being resurrected. For example, Lazarus, we heard about him, right? Tabitha, the little girl. Jesus was the first person to rise, never to die again. Therein lies the difference. Lazarus, when he came up from the tomb, Lazarus come forth. He died eventually. So is Tabitha, the eight-year-old girl. But Jesus Christ rise to never die again. He's resurrected. Jesus is the first person to conquer death. And therefore, the implication is this. All other resurrections are based on Jesus' resurrection. A believer's resurrection are based on Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus is resurrected, we are assured of our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 19 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God's fullness resides in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full embodiment of God's attributes and saving grace. We know God's attributes. Among them, omnipotence, that means all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere. These are among the attributes of God, holy, of course, grace, so and so forth. But it says that in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is the full embodiment. Now, who is Christ? He's God, His Savior. Now, what has Christ done? What has Christ done? Verse 20. Verse 20 says, And through Him, that is Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. From alienation to redemption, first point. The second point, we have alienation to reconciliation. Abraham redeemed the slave girl, but she's free to go. There's no relationship between Abraham and and the slave. But Christ not only redeem us, reconcile us to Him. Now the term reconciliation means to change or to exchange. It refers to a change in the sinner's relationship to God and Paul calls this relationship making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. Last Sunday we had the Lord's Supper. Every time we had Lord's Supper, of course the bread symbolized the body of Christ the cup represent or symbolize the blood of Christ. And we know that when Jesus Christ took the cup, He said, this is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus Christ says. And then He added, which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. Right? So this text tells us that, hey, we were reconciled through Christ's blood. Before the reconciliation, all unbelievers are, are alienated. We are alienated from God, separated Exchange, alone, outside, exile, cut off, lock out. We were alienated from God in verse 21 in two ways in mind and in deeds. Firstly, our minds. Our thoughts and attitude, before we come to Christ, our entire way of thinking was contrary to God's way. We refused to accept God's evaluation for, of us being as sinners. Sinners, I have no sin. 
I didn't murder anyone. I didn't steal. I didn't tell a lie. We also will not accept God's remedy for the situation. Surrender to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Our attitude, that means our mind. Secondly, our deeds, our action. Not just that our thinking was wrong, our action was wrong too. Nothing to do with, with, with God, nothing to do with Christian. That was before. Verse 23, if indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. A better way of translating this is since you continue in the faith. Because those who have been reconciled will persevere in the faith and obedience. We can do it. I refuse to come to a point where I say, hey, yeah, but it's not happening in my life. It couldn't happen to me, so and so. No, those are excuses because if we do it on our own strength, we can't do it. Zero. But not on our own strength, we can persevere because in addition to being declared righteous, believers are called new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Not only that, we are given a new disposition to love and obey God. Love and obey God. We are given a new disposition to hate sin. Why? Because we are energized by the Holy Spirit, not energized by the pastor who stands in front of you and preach. We are energized by the Holy Spirit. So a better way is since you continue in the faith, we will in His strength. How can man be reconciled to God? If you recall in Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about the chariot of God that comes down and Isaiah was looking at it. Chapter 6, verse 2 to 3. And as it described the chariot, uh, it stood there, above it stood a seraphim. Uh, it stood seraphim, sorry. Seraph means a, a single angel, but seraphim means a group. Now, each one of the seraphim has six wings. Six, okay? The first pair of wings, it covers his face. The second pair covers his feet. And with the two, he flew. Just imagine. So he got wings that fly, covers his eyes, covers his feet. Why? Because the chariot of God is very holy. Can you remember, recall Uzziah when he touched the chariot? I mean, the, the Ark of the Covenant? He died. Right? It's so holy. As the seraphim fly in formation on the chariot, among, with the chariot of God, cannot touch it. It's so holy. And then the, chariot, the seraphim says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is a superlative. Holy, holy, holy is a lot of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy for the Father, holy for the Son, and holy for the Spirit. Now, so when you have God who is holy meeting with man who is sinful, automatically it unleashes God's wrath. It will automatically unleash God's wrath. Now, in God's justice, He has to judge sin. In His justice, we must pay for what we do. So the only way a holy God can meet with a sinful man is this. There's mercy in between. Exodus 25, 22 says, God was speaking to Moses, and there I will meet you. Exodus 25, 22, I will meet you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are the ark of the testimony or ark of the covenant about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Can you imagine God speaking to Moses? He had to speak above this mercy seat. Otherwise, he will consume Moses because the Bible tells us that God is consuming fire. That's why you feel very hot right now, right? The icon is not working, part of the icon. God is consuming fire. Now, now what is interesting is this in the New Testament, in the New Testament, Christ, Jesus Christ is designated as our propitiation. The word for propitiation in the original language means mercy seat. If you have your Bibles, oh, it's, it's flesh on, doesn't matter. Romans chapter 3.23, very familiar passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we know this in our head. But as you continue, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood 
through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his, his forbearance, in God's patience, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed by all of us. Don't just look at Romans 3.23, look beyond. God set forth Christ as a propitiation. Christ is to have supremacy in all these things. There is no substitute for Christ. No, no angel, no other person, no animal, no other thing. There is no substitute for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says that. We have eternal security in Christ. We are set apart in Christ. We are secure in Christ. When we are set apart in Christ, God brings us from alienation to redemption. We are redeemed. When we are secure in Christ, God brought us from alienation to reconciliation. We have a relationship with God. Unlike Abraham, who redeemed the slave but have nothing to do with her in terms of becoming her kin, God not only redeemed us, He reconciled us. We were alienated from God because of Adam's sin. But throughout the gospel, the good news that Jesus had died on the cross of our behalf, we have moved from alienation to redemption, redemption to reconciliation. And we're going to go to the final point later. But if you have your Bible with you, this is, if you have your Bible, this is where the sin of man occurred in Genesis 1 to 3, perhaps. The rest of the Bible speaks about God's redemption, God's plan to redeem man to himself. Can you imagine that? Only one or two passages. The rest of the Bible talks about God's redeeming plan for man. We are secure in Christ, set apart by God and for God. Now we talk about third point, semblance in Christ, verses 24 to 29. Now let's look at the text again. Verses 24. Now, Paul says, Now I rejoice. In my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church, as I mentioned just now. Now, Paul uses himself as an example of someone set apart in Christ. Paul suffers for his faith. I mentioned he was in prison. So would we. Yet, at the same time, Paul was not in remorse or regret, but full of joy to be counted as someone belonging to Christ. Because the reality is this, that as we reflect Christ's likeness, in our lives, we will, not get, we will not get very far before we face opposition, before we face obstacles. And God willing, we don't have to face persecution. But take comfort. Suffering and hard work has a goal in the end, according to this text, is to present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. So spiritual maturity comes from suffering. Let's look at the text. Verse 24. It says, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. There is the church. Now, when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, there is the church. Now, this does not mean that there was a deficiency in the atoning work of Christ. It doesn't mean there's a deficiency. So Paul is trying to fill it up for Christ. No. But rather, the idea is that Christ suffered on the cross to atone for our sin. Christ suffered on the cross. And all of us believers fill up Christ's suffering by experiencing the added sufferings and persecution that has gone non-stop. As we continue to try our best to carry the gospel to a lost world, we continue to suffer. If you don't want suffering, don't do the gospel. Verse 25 to 26 talks about of which Paul says, I become a minister, became minister according to the stewardship 
from God which that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, our semblance in Christ, we rejoice in suffering because of our identity but we also revere Christ. Now to revere means to hold in high regard. That means worship. It also means something else more than worship. It means to love intensely. So when we come before the church and we sing the hymns, the praises, the choruses, the lyrics, yes, they are carefully selected. Praise be unto God for the worship team. The, the scripture reading are carefully selected. Praise be unto God. But to worship is more than just holding high regard. To worship means to love intensely. We should sing as though it's the last time we got a chance to sing. Now, nothing pleases Christ. Nothing pleases Christ more than to see the church. When he called this his bride, now, by the way, Grace Baptist Church is God's bride, right? Present his church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. You find this in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Colossians 127 talk about the mystery. What is the mystery? Now, the mystery is not some Sherlock Holmes, some Agatha Christie, and now nowadays got many uh, mystery. The mystery that Paul is talking is that the gospel includes the Gentiles. As I read this text, I was so moved because I am a Gentile. I hope you are, unless you have a crooked nose. Right? The gospel includes the Gentiles, which has not been previously revealed that the Gentiles will be admitted to the church body on equal terms with the Jews. The believers in Colossae are Gentiles and so are we. Verse 28, Paul says, Proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, we always do. Depend on the Word of God for our spiritual maturity. We cannot lead others to spiritual maturity if we are still babies, according to Hebrews 5. Now, Christian maturity is the spiritual ability to cope with relationships. God word, man word, that means horizontal men and women, and self word, the word self. Christian maturity is the spiritual ability to cope with such relationship. And righteousness means the right conduct that God expects believers to follow. The man who, or the woman who cannot cope with Christian conduct is a baby. So depend on the Word of God. That's why we spend time, energy and attention on preparing our Sunday school class. Now it's called Sunday Discipleships. Right? And then we have the children's Sunday school, we have the clubs, we have the care groups, and so on. Why? Because the only way we can grow to spiritual maturity is the Word of God. Verse 29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that means Christ, okay? Powerfully working within me. Now, this verse tells us that Paul, even he is a spiritual giant. He's powerless to do the work of proclamation and encouragement. The secret is that Christ enables us as we live out our Christian faith. Christ is the one of semblance in Christ because we rejoice and we revere A group of students in the primary school were gathered together and the teacher was talking to them and said, look, can you tell us, uh, as you go around, each one of you describe who is the superhero in your life. Superhero. And so one by one they came up. These are the uh, primary five students. And so first one talked about, oh, Iron Man. Right? And I one talked about the Japanese version, yeah? Ultraman. Then I one talked about Superman, all kind of men. And so when it came to this, this girl, and she was standing, oh, 
the superhero in my life is my father. So oh, I always start laughing, right? Uh, sometimes it can be very uh, unforgiving among the children. But the teacher was very kind. Oh, your father, okay. Mm, uh, can you tell us uh, what he do? Does he have a what superpower? Oh, he can stop traffic. He can stop vehicles. He can move vehicles. And I said, okay. And so, um, uh, do you carry a weapon? He said, no, no weapon. You don't have a special weapon. Okay. The teacher said, all right. Does he wear a uniform, a special uniform? And so the little girl said, yes, of course. He wears white, black pants. And then he, he has this. <laughs> so he wears white, black pants and he wears sunglasses. Now, the teacher was, at this point, decided not to pursue and said, okay, all right. And so let it pass. Superhero is your father. The boy grew up, uh, the girl grew up three months later. The whole school, primary five, they had to go for national education. And so they were on track to go to watch the National Day Parade, the rehearsal, of course, right? And so they went up to the bus. And as they proceed towards the esplanade, the uh, floating platform, suddenly the little girl said, hey, teacher, that's my, my father, right? And so the teacher took a closer look and saw, okay, the little girl's father was a traffic policeman. So he was there directing traffic, wearing the sunglasses, wearing a helmet, no tie, no weapon, black pants, directing traffic. Now, where is his power comes from? Where does his power come from? Because he represents the government of Singapore. If you get a royal Malaysian policeman and try to stand in Singapore also and try to direct traffic, probably he will be run, run over by a car or maybe a bus, right? Yesterday, I asked my daughter. She wear a T-shirt, white colour with blue collar, long sleeve, and uh, her, her CCA, her co-curricular activity is uh, police. So I asked her, hey, this, this uh, T-shirt looks very nice because long sleeve can go for camp, right? Wear for camp. Then she said, no, daddy, I can't wear it. I said, why not? Because there's a crest down there. I didn't know that there's a crest of the Singapore police force you cannot wear it outside. I said, oh. I was wondering why the army guys wear the number four all around the MRT station. Now, we are set apart in Christ. Our identity, our inheritance. We are secure in Christ. And then finally, we have our semblance in Christ. The conclusion very quickly. No Christ, no gospel. If there's no Christ, there's no gospel. We were once upon a time alienated from God. But God brings us from alienation to redemption, to reconciliation, to representation, representing Him. We were alienated from God, but through the gospel, we are now set apart in Christ, secure in Christ, and we have semblance in Christ. And Paul uses himself, himself as an example of someone set apart in Christ. Paul suffers for his faith, so would we. Christ is all-sufficient and preeminent. Christ is the only way. Application? We must all declare Christ as Lord of all or not at all. Christ is Lord of all or not at all. Let us see to it that all areas of both our personal life as well as public lives, personal life as well as public lives are under Christ's rule. That means Jesus comes first before anything or anyone. Christ is Lord of all or not at all. That means be on guard against allowing anything or anyone to occupy the place which rightly belongs to Jesus Christ. That means be on guard against the subtle danger of allowing Jesus a place of equal standing along with other things that clutter our lives. Things like 
perhaps church ministry, perhaps religious activity. Things like our children perhaps can occupy the top spot. Our spouses or those who are married, dates for those who are still married, not married. Our career achievement status. Now, none of these things are bad in themselves. Don't get me wrong, but they must not replace Christ because Christ is Lord of all or He's not at all. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We, we are grateful for the continuing work of the gospel in our lives. May the truth of the good news provoke us faith, hope, and love. The truth of the good news in Christ protect us from deception and provide us a focus on Christ as supreme and sufficient for all our needs. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.